You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Hello, welcome to Curator's Corner, Osama Bin Laden with Peter Bergen. I'm Amanda Olke, Director of Adult Education at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Thank you for joining us today. Spy Museum historian and curator, Dr. Andrew Hammond, will be talking with Peter Bergen about his new book, The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden, in just a few moments, um, which got the best book review I have ever read in the New York Times book review, Peter. Pretty, pretty spectacular. We've done a number of programs with Peter over the years, and he's a great friend of the museum, and it is always exceedingly interesting to hear what he is thinking. And it is especially interesting to hear from him now as the anniversary of 9-11 um, closes in on us. Peter is a vice president at New America and the author or editor of nine books, including three New York Times bestsellers and four Washington Post best nonfiction books of the year. He is a national security analyst for CNN and has testified before congressional committees 18 times about national security issues. Notably, for this conversation, he produced the first television interview with bin Laden in 1997, which continues to blow my mind. Um, and he also is such a terrific speaker because he has, has taught at the university level at some pretty amazing places. Well, all right, Andrew, my friend, over to you. Thanks, Amanda. Well, it would be an understatement to say that I'm really... I've really been looking forward to speaking to you, Peter. I mentioned before we came on screen that I've read pretty much all of your books and uh, I greatly enjoyed your most recent one. But just before we go on to discuss that, you know, it's this time of the year and, and the year it is, people are going to be going through or, or listening about where were people 20 years ago, where were people on 9-11. So I just wondered, you know, 
where were you on the morning of 9-11 and when did you know that Osama bin Laden was involved? First of all, thank you, Amanda, for the introduction. Andrew, thank you for the conversation. Thank you, Spy Museum, for putting this on. And thank you, anybody who's uh, listening to this. You know, uh, I'm having a real sense of deja vu uh, because on the morning of 9-11, I was going into CNN to talk about the assassination of Akbar Shah Massoud, who had been killed uh, tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of his assassination. We didn't know it at the time, but it was, in fact, bin Laden and al-Qaeda who had killed him. Uh, bin Laden's men had killed him. Uh, this was a devastating blow to the Northern Alliance, which was the group of people fighting the Taliban at the time. And they were kind of trying to keep it secret that bin Laden, that Massoud was actually dead. Um, because And he was, you know, the, the, the two assassins posed as television journalists and, and they, the camera blew up and he was mortally wounded almost, you know, with immediately. Um, and that was at a time when the Taliban, and, you know, that was really a prelude for the Taliban to take over what remained of Afghanistan that wasn't controlled by them. Uh, and bin Laden, you know, was, this was a gift to the Taliban because bin Laden knew the 9-11 attacks were going to happen and he knew it was going to be complicated for the Taliban afterwards. And this was sort of a gift to the Taliban from bin Laden. Now, 20 years later, the Taliban have just taken over what remained of the anti-Taliban resistance, which was led, is led by Ahmed Massoud's only son, Ahmed Massoud, who's 32, went to Sandhurst, went to King's College London. Now the Taliban are in fact in much better shape uh, militarily than they were before 9-11 because they have MRAP, you know, mine-resistant vehicles, they have armored Humvees, all this American materiel which was left behind in the sort of a hasty withdrawal of U.S. forces. And so there's going to be no, I mean, the anti-Taliban resistance, I think, will continue, but it's going to, it's, it, it's going to be less effective than Ahmed Shah Massoud was, who had access to Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, lines of communication to the neighboring countries. The Taliban closed that off. One of the, the sort of brilliance of their military strategy was to take over the north, uh, because they already knew they had the South and the East in their pocket. Um, so it, it feels, you know, it's kind of strange to be at the 20th anniversary and for the Taliban to be again in control of Afghanistan, for the anti-Taliban resistance now to be defeated. Uh, it seems almost entirely there's still mixed reports about kind of, are the Taliban completely in control of the Pangea Valley or not? But it seems safe to say that they, you know, they have completely won the war. Um, and that is, you know, and Siraj Akhani just been nominated to be the new Minister of the Interior. You know, he is uh, closely, closely affiliated with Al-Qaeda. Uh, the Ministry of the Interior in Afghanistan effectively is like the Department of Homeland Security in the United States with the FBI thrown in. And it's a very powerful position. I actually thought that this was the position he would get because Siraj Akhani is really the power behind the throne in a lot of sense. He's the military leader. He won this great military victory. He had been the deputy leader, and now he's effectively in charge of all security in Afghanistan. So, you know, it's a, it's a sad commentary, and it's sort of all the people that were saying we have all this leverage after, on the Taliban. I always thought that was nonsense because the Taliban don't really need they, – they'd love to have international recognition. They would love to have the $9.4 billion of, dollars of Afghan reserves in U.S. banks but they don't really need it because in the pre 9-11 Taliban that were only recognized, as you know, Andrew, by three countries, 
and they, you know, they don't need a huge amount of money to function. They do have to pay their foot soldiers, but they're sitting on, you know, the largest pile of drug cash in the world outside of Colombia, which is the opium and poppy trade in Afghanistan, which they benefited from uh, over the last 20 years. And they also importantly have 38 million people that they can tax and extort. Um, and that, yeah. Uh, so I think there's been a great deal of mirror imaging, which uh, is, a, I think, a, of course, the Spy Museum is a great place to talk about mirror imaging, which is the uh, problematic kind of intelligence failure when you think everybody thinks like yourself. And I think we've done a lot of that with the Taliban. Um, and, you know, because we have some of their money, we think we have a huge amount of leverage over them. I don't think that's true. And we, we'll see. They've already talked about the Chinese funding them. I think the first country that will recognize them is China maybe followed by Russia and then then Pakistan, because China, Pakistan's waiting for these other bigger countries to recognize before it makes its own move. Because I think the Pakistanis understand that if they were the first to recognize, it would cause some kind of international problems for them. They, of course, have been close to the Akhani network for, for decades, going back to the anti-Soviet war. So they know the, these guys well. And I, I, th I mean, there's so much that I would like to, <laughs> like to ask you. I'm going to try to condense it down uh, for our viewers. Um, what, one of them was, you know, looking back over this scene, to, like just over just under 25 years ago, you produced the first uh, interview with Osama bin Laden, where he, you know, puts himself on the map, saying that he's at war with America. Your book, Holy War Inc., you know, has Osama bin Laden on the front cover. Your most recent book has Osama bin Laden on the front cover, but as a boy this time, uh, mm -hmm. you wrote a book, <laughs> Manhunt, The Hunt for Osama bin Laden. And I, I, I guess my question is, what, what do you think as you mull this scene, like having been, you know, most of us were in the nosebleeds. You were, you were down in the orchestra, the stalls. You've spoke to a lot of the main actors, um, including Osama bin Laden. Yeah, I, I mean, I, this is a big question, but is there any thoughts that you have as someone that has lived and breathed this for a quarter of a century? Like, help us understand what, what you're sort of thinking about at the moment. Well, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book is I teach at Arizona State, and one of the, my students who was, I don't think, born on 9-11 or maybe been one or two said at one point, she asked me, you know, what's the difference between the Al Qaeda and uh, Al Qaeda and the Taliban? And I thought, wow, that's a really interesting question. And then I realized that for her and the students in the class, 9/11 was as distant as the Korean War is for me. You know, it's something that I mean, it's a little different than the Korean War in the sense we're still living with the aftershocks of 9/11 domestically in the United States. And the Korean War, you know, came to an end. And <clears throat> by the time you know I was cognizant of it, it wasn't. It was kind of almost a lost piece of American history. Um, but so that was one element, which is the realization that, you know, there's a whole new generation of people joining the U.S. military. Th those 13 Marines who were killed in Kabul at the airport were either not born or were very small children on 9-11. And so we're far enough away from the event to like have some historical perspective. And then another big element was the release of all the bin Laden documents. They've been released in tranches in 2012. Um, and there were, I think, three releases under the Obama administration. They were released in full under the Trump administration in this late 2017. 
And so these provide a huge map to kind of what Bin Laden was thinking. There was a 228-page family diary written, handwritten in Arabic that was released in this final tranche, which was very useful for my for writing this book because it was kind of what the Bin Laden were thinking and doing in the final weeks of Bin Laden's life. They were transcribing all his thoughts about the Arab Spring. They were planning a big speech that he would deliver. Um, and then, you know, there were six of the 470,000 files that were released. Many of them were not useful. They were cartoons his kids were watching or he himself would write 50 versions of a memo. So of those 470,000 files, there were 6,000 pages of material that is really useful. And they include, you know, love letters to his oldest wife. They include instructions that run 40 pages long to his top lieutenants. Uh, about what al-Qaeda should do. They include his correspondence with al-Shabaab in Somalia, with al-Qaeda in Yemen, with al-Qaeda in North Africa, uh, with the Pakistani Taliban, uh, with Mullah Omar, the leader of the Taliban. And, you know, so it's a really good, it's a great window into what his mind, and he never expected any of this to fall into the hands of his main enemy. And here it is. And so now it's all publicly released. And so there was that element. And then also, uh, you know, it, over time, there has been more, I'll tell you, I just, because I am get excited when I find new documents and new uh, time <laughs> And, um, you know, so the Senate Intelligence Committee on, on coercive interrogations, torture, secret prisons, you know, is a fantastic work of history. You know, some people in the CIA didn't, don't particularly like it because it's obviously quite critical. But just as it, it surfaced a huge amount of information that was previously classified about the hunt for bin Laden as kind of a byproduct of the investigation of the CIA secret prison. And so that was a very useful set of documents. The Abbottabad Commission, which was Pakistan's own accounting of how bin Laden was living in, in Pakistan, is also a very useful primary document because they interviewed 200 people in Pakistan who had some knowledge about all this. It was leaked by Al Jazeera in 2014. Zawahiri, the, now the new leader of Al-Qaeda, released his own account of the Battle of Tora Bora in 2015. And he was a primary, you know, he would, he escaped from the Battle of Tora Bora with bin Laden himself. And so we can date, bin Laden, Zawahiri says we escaped on December 12th at 11 p.m. Well, I knew, we always knew the window, but now, so all, I guess what I'm saying is not only were this, all these new documents from Abadabad useful, but we continue to get primary documents that help us sort of fill in some, some you know, very important gaps. And then also two other points, three, two other related, one other related point, really, which is people in Al-Qaeda's inner circle, like Abu Jandal, who was uh, bin Laden's bodyguard, he's now dead, released a memoir of his time with bin Laden in French, which then was released in English. And uh, there's a guy called Abu, um, uh, yeah, Al-Misri, who was the kind of Taliban liaison between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, to some degree, he released uh, his sort of memoir of his time. And so there's been... People in Belan's in, in a circle have released their own accounts of their time with Bin Laden, and those of all. And then, you know, every U.S. official who attained a certain status has written their own memoir of the war on terror. So, whether it's Mike Morrell, who was deputy, you know, deputy leader of the CIA, and then the acting leader uh, director of the CIA, or whether it's you know, pick your American official. Um, you know, there's there's a lot. President Obama, <laughs> you know, his 900-page memoir is very interesting about the hunt for Bin Laden and um, and sort of allied topics. So that's all by way of saying, in the last 10 years, I mean, I wrote Manhunt about the hunt for Bin Laden. It came out in 2012. So in the nine years since that came out, 
there's been a lot of material that has surfaced that has really helped, I think, fill in our understanding of Bin Laden, his family, his relationship with Al-Qaeda, etc. One of the things that I loved about the book was the way that you blend in just humdrum everyday activities with this bigger canvas within which Osama Bin Laden was, was an actor. And I just wondered at the most general level, you know, as someone who's read all of these documents, who's written all of this stuff, who's actually met him, how much do you think Osama bin Laden bent history to his will? And how much or or, or how much or was he, sorry, was he on the other hand just a passenger that was that was going along and and uh historical processes that were already taking place? Help us understand how you break that down. You know, it's it's and I subscribe to a very old-fashioned uh, view of history. Uh, which is the great man view of history. And like, you can't explain why the French were at the gates of Moscow in 1812 without Napoleon. You really can't, I don't think. Um, yes, of course, the French Revolution needed to take place. A national army that was made up of like, you know, the, what we, the really modern national army that, that came out of the French Revolution. All of that was necessary, but without Napoleon's ambition and ego, you, would, you, don't, you, don't, you don't end up with a French military, uh, you know, invading Russia, I think. Similarly, Hitler and the Holocaust, you know, it, it's hard to explain without Hitler. There's a great debate about that. Uh, but in my view, it's, it's hard to explain it without Hitler. Now, Bin Laden is not Hitler or, or Napoleon. He didn't change history that dramatically. But he is somebody who changed history. And, you know, 9-11 was really his strategic idea. One of the sub-themes of the book is the extent to which people, live, including myself, overestimated the influence of Zawahiri on his thinking. It's really Bin Laden's idea to attack the United States. It was his strategic conceit. Um, you know, he did it with, there was internal pushback within Al-Qaeda about the idea. There was internal pushback within the jihadi community about attacking the United States. He ignored all that. You know, he recruited the right people to do the mission, people like Mohammed Atta. Uh, you know, he selected the targets. It's really so, like, without Bin Laden, I think there's no 9-11. It's just that simple. Because no one else in Al-Qaeda really had this idea. No one else then kind of implemented it. Maybe Abu Hafs al-Masri, who, you know, we can say who was killed uh, by a CIA, by a U.S. airstrike shortly after 9-11. You know, he was really kind of integral to this as well. Uh, but ultimately, it was bin Laden. And so I don't think he was a passenger. Now, the interesting question, and you're helping me write my piece for CNN.com, which I have to file soon. You're welcome. We might be really like, um, you know, bin Laden changed history. It's just not in the way he thought it was going to be changed. You know, he really had a strategic idea that we would attack the United States and then we pull out, you know, we pull out of the Middle East and the Saudi Arabia regime would fall. This was kind of a crazy strategy because he, he based it on our pull out of Somalia in 93 after the Black Hawk Down incident. He based it on the pull out of the Reagan administration after the Marine Barracks attack where 241 American servicemen were killed in Beirut. Uh, but, you know, we're not going to pull out of the Middle East because we're attacked in Washington and New York. It makes no sense strategically. And so, you know, one of the themes of the book is bin Laden as a, as a strategic failure, you know, as a, a guy who set up a base in Afghanistan right next to a Soviet post, no Afghans would ever do that because they were fighting guerrilla warfare. They didn't set up conventional bases for, for it to be attacked by the Soviets. And in bin Laden's mind, he helped defeat the Soviets. It's crazy. Uh, he participated in the battle of Jalalabad. It was a total fiasco in 1989. Many of his men were killed. 
then he had this idea about attacking the United States, the, the, you know, the head of the snake. Uh, you know, it didn't, none of it really made any sense. Uh, and Bin Laden didn't come out of a military background. He came out of a business background. And I think he made a bunch of not very smart military decisions. And 9-11 being the kind of classic example, which was a great tactical victory for al-Qaeda, but it didn't produce anything he wanted. Now, it did produce a lot of other things. It changed the course of American foreign policy for the first two decades of the 21st century. And the United States got involved in military operations in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Yemen, um, Pakistan, you know, seven Muslim countries, uh, Syria, all of which in kind of in some ways are linked back to 9-11. But uh, that was not in Bin Laden's intention. And uh, he sort of in 2004, he came out with an audio tape or videotape saying, hey, this is all you know, clever plan to drag the United States and into the Middle East and bleed us dry. But that was a post facto explanation for his own failures. And unfortunately, a lot of people in the West bought Bin Laden's line. They actually thought that he was, that this was a clever plan, but it, it, it doesn't make any sense. He, would, <laughs> he wanted the US out of the Middle East and we got more involved in the Middle East than we've ever been in, in our history. And we set up new bases, like, you know, the base that's been used for all these Afghan refugees in Qatar. You know, it's the largest base, U.S. military base in the Middle East. You know, Bin Laden intended none of this. And so, you know, there's a kind of mistake we commonly make, commonly sometimes make, which is to sort of believe the propaganda of our enemies um, as if it's true. And, you know, plenty of people in the West believe that Bin Laden had this clever plan to bleed us and pull us into these endless wars. And that, that was not his intention. He didn't plan for it. It wasn't his intention. And we've spoke about Osama bin Laden as a as a leader, as a, a a terrorist. So I just want to like go go down and look at him as a man. And I think that's one of the things that you do really well in the book. And it, it reminded me again. You know, I don't want to overdraw the analogy, but you read about uh, you know concentration camp guards who done like completely repellent. Uh, horrific things but then they would go home and they were they were like the family man they were tender with their wife and kids and and you bring out some of that in the book the way that he could orchestrate this uh you know these uh attacks but then he could be quite tender he could be quite thoughtful um helps understand him as a as a man a little bit more well you know i mean hitler was nice to his dog it doesn't mean that he didn't you know kind of orchestrate the Holocaust. And Stalin was quite nice to his daughter. Uh, that didn't mean that he didn't kill millions of people. So bin Laden, you know, the fact that he's nice to his family members is, is sort of on some, in some ways, not, it doesn't really mean anything in the bigger scheme of things. But, it, but the book is an attempt not to humanize bin Laden, except that he is a human. Um, and the book is an attempt to explain the full person. And, you know, bin Laden, ha- there were a few two or three people who told me things about bin Laden, which I think really kind of get to the core of how he thinks. One is Jamal Khalifa, his body, his brother-in-law, who was killed in mysterious circumstances in Madagascar in 2007, who I spoke to uh, in, 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 in Jeddah. Uh, and uh, Jamal Khalifa was bin Laden's best friend at university and also his brother-in-law. And also subscribed very much to bin Laden's kind of ultra-religious kind of views. Um, and at, at least particularly when they were friends at university. And Jamal Khalifa told me that bin Laden really believed that he was doing God's will and that God would punish him if he didn't do the things that he, that he did. And so I thought that was very kind of, this is a guy who knew him, spent 
thousands of hours with him, was so close to him that bin Laden said, you should marry, you just should take a second wife, you should take Sheikha bin Laden, who is my half-sister, who was also very observant, and, and take her as, a, as, your, as your second wife. So, and then a second person said to me, Noman Ben Oatman, who was the former leader of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, Noman, who is now a kind of, you know, very much a vocal anti-jihadist, anti-Al-Qaeda uh, guy based in London, he said that Bin Laden subscribed to this kind of very minority view that, you know, unless you are an ultra-observant Muslim, you kind of like didn't deserve immunity from, you know, from, from you, you, you weren't immune from, for, for instance, being killed in Bin Laden's holy war. And that point, I, I think, was amplified by Abu Jandal, the Bin Laden family, Bin Laden bodyguard, who I mentioned wrote a memoir, because there's a very telling sequence in this memoir where Abu Jandal talks to Bin Laden after the embassy attacks in Africa, which killed 200 Kenyans and Tanzanians and 12 Americans. And they're all, you know, they're all civilians. And Abu Jandal said, why did you kill so many civilians? Was that really necessary? And Bin Laden sort of laughing and saying, well, we warned that Americans could be targeted. And anybody who didn't heed the warnings was kind of fair game. And then Abu Jandal, who'd spent time in Kenya, said, well, what about the Muslims? Because he knew that there was a very substantial Muslim civilian population in Kenya. And Bin Laden said, sort of laughed again and said, well, we timed the bomb so it went off at 10.30 on a Friday morning. So if you're an observant Muslim, you were in the mosque. And if you're a non-observant, you were, you know, that was really your problem. So that, I think that those kind of points taken together kind of get to this kind of worldview. Bin Laden was a religious zealot from an early age. And one of the theme, one of the meta-narratives of the book is the role that Islam played in his life and how he tried to model himself on the Prophet Muhammad. He married three women who, who claimed descent from the Prophet Muhammad. He saw himself as a military commander who fought in the tradition of Prophet Muhammad. In the Al-Qaeda minutes of the formal meetings that Al-Qaeda was founded, they talked about sending 314 men to be trained within six months. Now, 314 men wouldn't necessarily ring a bell with everybody, but if you're a highly observant Muslim, that's the number of men that the Prophet Muhammad fought with at the Battle of Badal in 624 when he fought the Muslims. So this 314 man number was metaphorical, but it shows you kind of the mindset, which is we're following in the footsteps of the Prophet Muhammad. And uh, Bin Laden really saw himself, no matter how delusional that was, as kind of doing God's will and kind of walking in the footsteps of the Prophet Muhammad to the extent that he would sleep in the same way as the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, and he you know, modeled himself in his own mind on the Prophet. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. 
demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Yeah, I think I was trying to just get at this, you know, the idea of the banality of evil, but... but that's, I mean, look, I mean, uh, you know, we all leave banal, everybody leads banal lives when you kind of get down to like, you know, take out the garbage, honey, or whatever. I mean, (laughs) so there's always that aspect, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, Bin Laden, he, you know, had had a sort of pretty standard family life for of a certain kind providing you have four wives and a dozen you know 20 kids and you know he tried to be a, a good father in fact he blew up his own family over time you literally i mean three of his sons died in u.s counterterrorism operations one of his daughters died in childbirth in the tribal regions in pakistan because there was no medical care you know his you know one of his wives was wounded the night of the operation that killed him three of his wives spent a year in Pakistani house arrest, effectively. Uh, one of his wives and seven of his kids lived under house arrest in Iran uh, after 9-11 for a decade. And, you know, two of his wives left him because and took five of his kids. So he, you know, he he saw himself as a family man, but he, his actions sort of blew up his own family. Um, and, yeah, certainly the banality of evil is, um, I think, it's true in Bernard's case. And I, I think I think that's really fascinating. So and we've so we've spoke about him as the leader of Al Qaeda and as you know the family man, banality of evil. Just just to pick up again on the religiosity, um, I, I don't want to read too much into this, but I wondered what you thought of it. Like I have a very very dear friend from Latakia, uh, who's an Alawite in Syria, and. And Bin Laden's mother was an Alawite from Latakia in Syria. And I just wondered if, you know, again, there's different <laughs> points of view on the role of psychology, but was his zealotry a reaction to the fact that his mother was from a sect that um, Orthodox Sunnis don't see as being truly Muslim? Yeah, I mean, that is a super interesting question. I can't give you a good answer, but I, but I do, like, we know for a fact now, we always suspected that her, his mother was an Alawite because she came from Latakia, which is an Alawite city in Syria. But she confirmed that in an interview with The Guardian, I think two years ago with Martin Chulov. And, um, you know, Alawites are regarded as sort of heretical sect of Shia, uh, which themselves are seen as somewhat heretical if you're a very orthodox Sunni fundamentalist from Saudi Arabia. So, yes. The fact that she was, Bin Laden was an outsider in many ways. His family's from Yemen, so he would never really be a true Saudi. You know, the, the Nejdi of Saudis, where the Saudi royal family kind of originates. He was, uh, the, the, he was the son, you know, one of 55 siblings. He, you know, his mother and father were only married for two years. She's, a, she's an Alawite. Um, you know, he was kind of a bit of an outsider in his own family. Um, he was, his family itself was somewhat of an outsider in Saudi Arabia. And then he has this Alawite mother. So I don't, I lay all that out in the book. I don't say here's the magic, here's the kind of, uh, 
you know, in Citizen Kane, the Rosebud moment is, yeah, I don't, because I don't, I think it's, it, I think of this as a process of radicalization that took place over a long time. And certainly one way of kind of distinguishing himself, and he did distinguish himself when he was a, when he was a teenager, was being very, very religiously observant, hyper-observant, praying twice, sorry, fasting twice a week and adding an extra set, set of prayers at night. And that, that extreme re- religiosity kind of gave him an identity that was different and, and it probably in his own mind, perhaps superior to you know, other people. But I don't, I think you raise a really great question. I don't have a really great answer, uh, but that is clearly an, a very important part of his story. Um, and, you know, Hitler was an outs, and again, I don't, Bernard's very different from Hitler, but like Hitler was, you know, kind of an outsider because he was from Austria, right, in Germany. And, and, and Stalin was sort of an outsider because he was from Georgia. <laughs> You know, so it's interesting when you see these kind of outsiders trying to be more, m- more kind of uh, more Catholic than the Pope, as it were, um, you know, and more Russian than the average Russian or more German than the average Russian. Here, Bin Laden being more of a Wahhabi fundamentalist. And then, but, you know, I don't, I try and avoid the armchair psychologizing because I just, ultimately it's not, we just don't know. And, and just to go back to one of your earlier examples, I was just thinking as well, Napoleon was from Corsica, well, so exactly. he wasn't from mainland France. That is a great point. Napoleon's from Corsica. So look, these people, yeah, the, and uh, yeah, the, that's a great point. And I think, I mean, I don't know what you think, what you think about what I'm about to say, but reading your book, you know, Bin Laden, um, in some ways, he's quite a pathetic figure, or that's that's the way it seemed to me. You know, like the Battle of uh, Jaji, he, you know, it's the Afghans that do most of the fighting and the dying. Uh, yeah. Most of the most of the uh, insurgencies funded by uh, the West and Saudi Arabia, Pakistan controls the logistics, but somehow he inserts himself into the process and makes it seem like the Battle of Jaji, the fall of the Soviet Union, it's all because he went there and threw around some money and built some roads. I mean, it seems kind of, on one level, it almost seems kind of absurd, but he had enough money that, and connections that he could create his own reality. Do you think that's, what, I don't know, what do you think of that? Very good summary of, <laughs> you know, he was kind of, kind of he, he was caught up in a serious delusion about himself and his role in history. And, you know, the fact that didn't, he still really impacted history, but the way he interpreted his role in the anti-Soviet jihad was, you know, the, <clears throat> another really great document that I relied on was um, Abdul Badaji is his real name. He, he, he under a pen name, he, he wrote a con- almost contemporary, contemporary in his account of the Afghan Arabs, the group of people that fought in Afghanistan, or, and they were called the Afghan Arabs. And in 91, he published his book, and it was based on contemporaneous interviews that he conducted. It's very detailed. He had transcripts of walkie-talkie transmissions from the battlefield. He also, it's not a hagiography. Uh, Jihad Magazine, which is also a useful source, is sort of much more hagiographic about the Afghan Arabs. He takes people to task for mistakes like the Battle of Jalalabad in which Bin Laden uh, played a starring role and really got a lot of people killed for no reason. So 
the but the you know the Afghan Arabs just they you know the the maximum number on the battlefield was three hundred at any given time. And you know in the Battle of Jaji, thirteen of Bin Laden's men were killed, and then as you say, like more than two hundred Afghans came in to essentially relieve Bin Laden, who retreated from the battlefield. Um, so it was really delusional that you know that he that he felt that somehow he'd had played this big role. Um, and you know Jamal Khashoggi, who was murdered by um, Saudi officials in in Istanbul in 2018 was the first mainstream journalist to really write about bin Laden. He wrote in 1988 in the Arab language press a profile of bin Laden, which really kind of elevated his profile. And you know, to bin Laden's credit, he did actually fight rather bravely against the Soviets. It didn't mean that he had a big impact on the war at all. Uh, but he wasn't somebody, you know, there are, I think, 6,000 Saudi princes. None of them suddenly showed up in Afghanistan leading a group of men fighting the Soviets in what was, after all, in traditional jihadist term, a very legitimate jihad, which the United States supported. He was an infidel force invading a Muslim country, killed at least a million Afghans, forced a third of the population out of their homes. I mean, there's still the third generation Afghans, millions of them living in Pakistan today and in Iran, because of the Soviet invasion. And so they, the Soviets invaded a totalitarian total war on the population. They, they had no compunction about killing vast numbers of uh, Afghan civilians. And of course, you know, in the post 9-11 era of the United States, Senate's killed Afghan civilians in its wars. But I mean, you're talking about orders of magnitude smaller than what the Soviets inflicted. Um, and so, you know, Bin Laden did participate in the war. He just, I think, kind of, he didn't understand that his own role was pretty small. And one of the one of the things about uh, Bin Laden that I was also going to ask was, um, you know, what what is the you know now we're coming up on the twentieth anniversary of nine eleven. What's the after? How do you see the afterlife of Osama Bin Laden playing out? His ideas, his. Uh, you know, organization, um, followers, and so forth? Well, you know, I think I, I end the book with Gina Bennett, who's um, kind of one of the key characters in the book. She, she wrote, as a, as a young junior analyst at the um, State Department, she wrote the first classified memo warning about bin Laden. She's still at the agency. And um, on when bin Laden was killed, some, a junior analyst who was about the same age as when she first wrote this 1993 warning said, you know, great day killed bin Laden. This junior analyst, analyst was 26 and, well, you know, in her mid-20s. And Gina Ross said, like, have you ever heard of the Bader Meinhof gang? And this junior analyst at the CIA says, no, I haven't. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, in the 1970s, Bader Meinhof gang were a very big deal. And Gina Bennett says, you know, the worst day for Al-Qaeda bin Laden is when, you know, somebody at the CIA counterterrorism center doesn't know who he is. Now, I'm sure that will take a long time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, you know, he will fade into history. Unfortunately, his legacy, I mean, he, it's just been given a tremendous boost by the Taliban taking over Afghanistan, Siraj Akhani becoming the Minister of the Interior. According to the UN, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban remain closely aligned. Al-Qaeda is going to take a, you know, it's going to celebrate the 9-11 anniversary, which is coming up very shortly. So will the Taliban. There's going to be tremendous excitement in the jihadi movement. And the jihadi movement is not that strong. It doesn't pose an existential threat to the West or anything, but it, but it, it, it does, you know, when, when ISIS took over Syria and much of Syria and Iraq, you know, that gave a tremendous boot, 
boosted the movement and you saw thousands of foreign fighters coming in to Iraq, including thousands of Westerners. And I think you'll see something similar in Afghanistan. It may be a little bit different because Afghanistan is a little harder to get to perhaps than Syria and Iraq, which is in the heart of the Middle East and closer to Europe. But you will see something similar for sure. So how does his, you know, like, I mean, bin Laden, you know, his ideas about the United States being the main enemy, that continues to be kind of a important part of the ideology of these groups. Um, and, you know, so I think it's, you know, Al-Qaeda is going to have a new lease of life because of the new situation that has suddenly arisen in, 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 in Afghanistan. Um, does that mean that, you know, they're going to be able to attack the United States? I doubt it uh, for the foreseeable future. Does it mean that people in the United States might be inspired by Al-Qaeda to carry out homegrown attacks? We saw that with ISIS. Why wouldn't we see this with, with Al-Qaeda again? So um, that's a real possibility. And then, of course, you could certainly see attacks in the region against American targets or other targets. You could certainly see Europeans getting training in Afghanistan, going back to Europe. All that is very plausible. Will it go on forever? No, but might it go on for the next several years? Yes. And you mentioned um, Haqqani um, there and earlier when we were speaking, and I was just wondering, if for our viewers, could you just crystallize some of those links between the Haqqani network and Al-Qaeda? Because uh, Jalaluddin Haqqani, um, the Haqqani network, there's been closer links between the Haqqani network and uh, Al-Qaeda historically. Um, so I just wondered if you could, sorry, I didn't, I didn't frame that question very well, but could you just crystallize some of that for us? Jalaluddin Haqqani is the patriarch of the, of the Haqqani network and he is now dead and he was close, you know, Bin Laden knew him well in the 80s and the Haqqani network has aligned itself with Al-Qaeda um, over time, um, according to the US State Department. Um, Khalil Haqqani, who ironically enough was appointed head of security in Kabul, is the uncle of Sirajuddin Haqqani, who's the military leader of the Haqqani network. Both of these people have, you know, are designated foreign terrorists with substantial $5 million. It's interesting, Sirajuddin Haqqani has $5 million on his head from uh, the FBI and up to $10 million with the State Department. So I'm not sure if they're coordinating completely. <laughs> on this but the point is is that you know he's he's the Haqqani network has carried out you know according to the national counterterrorism center you know a series of devastating attacks in in kabul and according to the un is aligned with al-qaeda according to the state department is aligned with al-qaeda and you know these are not my opinions and these are publicly available documents that anybody watching this can go to the state department website or go to the UN, um, you know, there's a very useful set of UN reports that comes out quarterly, which documents kind of Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. Um, and, you know, the, the last one I think was released, released in June. It says that Al-Qaeda and the Taliban are closely aligned and it describes Haqqani as sort of part of the leadership of Al-Qaeda. So I think these, um, yeah, that's all you need to know. I want to hand it over to Amanda in a second, but I want to quickly squeeze in two, two final questions. One of them, uh, you know, in 1997, you're part of a team that interviews Bin Laden for CNN. And I just wondered, did you, did you ever speak with any of the other Western journalists that interviewed Bin Laden about your experiences? People like Robert Fisk, John Miller, Scott McLeod. A, I spent days with Robert Fisk in Jalalabad, um, and uh, that's a whole other story. Um, okay. 
Um, but, you know, I've spoken to John Miller, who interviewed bin Laden, you know, who's now the head of NYPD, counterterrorism and intelligence. And uh, I spoke to Scott McLeod, who interviewed bin Laden in, for Time magazine back in Sudan when bin Laden was presenting himself as a businessman. That was his sort of public posture. Um, Rahu Mullah Yousafzai, who's sort of the dean of Pakistani journalists who interviewed bin Laden. Uh, Ismail Khan, who attended bin Laden's press conference with another Pakistani journalist, Hamid Mir, who interviewed bin Laden on three occasions, including after 9-11. So, yeah, I've, I've talked to everybody who's talked to him that I could talk to. You know? <laughs> <laughs> easier to talk to the journalists. And you know, one of the things I say in the book is like so many of the people that I talk to are now dead. And that, you know, Jamal Khalifa, his brother-in-law, was murdered in Madagascar. I've mentioned him already. Uh, bin Laden himself, of course, is dead. Mullah Hokshah, who was... Um, the Minister of the Interior, who was uh, somebody who was actually very opposed to bin Laden, a Taliban minister, he was assassinated. Another Taliban official uh, called Vahid Mojdeh, he was assassinated. A lot, uh, Abu Musab al-Suri, who was a kind of key ideologue to this movement, and I spent a lot of time with him on meeting on, in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and London. He, he disappeared in Pakistan in 2005. He probably ended up in Syria. He is either dead or just, or not, 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 you know, so... A lot of the people in Bin Laden's inner circle are, are, that I spoke to are, are dead uh, because you know, it's a dangerous thing to be part of this inner circle. <laughs> um, and um, but the journalists are, are, are all are all with us except Robert Fisk, who died last year. And uh, you know they all have interesting angles on Bin Laden because he mm-hmm. they all spent varying amounts of time with him. It could be a good future program, maybe. Uh, and final, final question: J- Just when you met him, is there anything about that interview or that experience or your subsequent research that you haven't uh, disclosed in any other forums that you would be uh, willing to share with the with the <laughs> spy museums viewers? I mean, I mean, uh, I've you know, one at the end of the interview, I you know, Bin Laden was making all these threats in the United States. And, you know, part of me was like, well, super interesting, but how do you do that? You know, you're sitting in a mud hut in Afghanistan. It's 6,000 miles from the United States. You know, the Af- Afghanistan under the Taliban had been dragged back in the Middle Ages. There was no phone service. There was no internet, certainly. There was, it, was, it was very isolated. So how do you implement this war was sort of at the back of my mind. And the answer came, you know, a year later with the embassy attacks in, in Africa. Because that showed that they had an ability, they had, you know, they built up this infrastructure in Tanzania and Kenya to carry out these attacks. They sent people to Somalia as well. Uh, so that showed that, it, you know, they had global reach and that, they, you know, that the rhetoric was matched by capability. Um, uh, so that, that was kind of my, one of the, when I left the meeting with them, you know, we was the middle of the night and we went back to our hotel and uh, they all seem very serious and bin Laden seemed very serious. But the question was, you know, it's one thing to have capability. It's one thing to have the intent, but who has the capability? And that was really the question on 9-11. The universe of people with capability was pretty large. So, but, but would they have the intent, you know, uh, and, and, and the answer is, you know, Bush asked Mike Morrell, who was his briefer that day, you know, who, who did this? You know, and Morrell said, you know, Iran or Iraq, could do this, but they probably don't want to do this. And I'm going to put my money on Osama bin Laden. And he had that exchange with uh, with President Bush at 10:45 a.m. on on 9/11 in Air Force One as it was flying around the country. So, so I again, 
lots of people might want to do something in the United States. Very few people have the capability to do it and the intent to do it. And Al-Qaeda, of course, was that group. Andrew, I very much appreciated your trying to get us information that nobody else has gotten <laughs> from Peter Bergen, and that is the true spy museum fashion. Um, we have lots of very diverse questions, so I'm just going to ask them in the order in which they came in, because sometimes they all fall into piles, but they did not. Um, one gentleman, a former UK law enforcement intelligence analyst, wants to know how worried, Peter, are you about the willingness or otherwise of Russia, China, and Pakistan to reign in Taliban terrorism or Al-Qaeda terrorism or both? Well, I mean, certainly the Chinese have a strong interest in preventing Uyghur, you know, what they see as terrorists. And certainly the Russians have a strong interest in not having, you know, terrorism on their border. The Pakistanis don't want the Pakistani Taliban to start attacking. So, I mean, I, I think they're kind of, they're, it's a dilemma for them because they're happy the United States was forced out because Bagram Air Force Base was, you know, at one point housed 50,000 American servicemen and women. And, you know, it's a perfect place to project power into towards China, towards Russia and towards Pakistan. So I'm sure, I'm sure they're delighted that we voluntarily decided to leave. Um, on the other hand, you know, they definitely don't want, you know, terrorism kind of showing up on their doorstep. So I think they'll they'll try and pre they'll try and pressure the Taliban to prevent that. But um, it'll be interesting to see how how successful that effort is, because I mean, there'll be parts of the Taliban who are perfectly happy with having you know militants training you know beside them and helping them and. They certainly recruited foreign fighters before 9-11 to fight alongside the Taliban. So I, I just don't, it's gonna be a dilemma for these countries. Now, when this question came in, I did not know where it was going because um, the guests saw Dwayne Johnson, The Rock on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And he said that the night that um, they caught Bin Laden, he received a text from Joe Biden um, about this. So I thought that was fascinating. But the question is, how closely allied are the politicians and Hollywood to reporters and the media no more um, than they let on? Um, so well, I mean, reporters are in the business of telling the public what they know as soon as right. possible. So right. <laughs> I don't think it's not like we're keeping this the secret source, you know, to ourselves. I mean, it's a very competitive business, even let's say internally within an organization like CNN or the Post or the Times and people are, so, um, but, you know, the question on, there was, you know, there was a relevant, the makers of Zero Dark Thirty got quite a lot of help from the agents of CIA in the making of that film, which I think ended up being a pretty misleading film, suggesting in the first half an hour that, if you torture somebody enough, they're going to lead you to Bin Laden. And that was really the kind of the subtext of that film. Um, whatever the intent of the, of the filmmakers, that is, I think, what the public took away. So in that case, there were close links. I mean, but, you know, it's not surprising CIA, you know, had a good story to tell. It was a great success. They, 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 you know, they, when I wrote my book, they cooperated with my book. I mean, why wouldn't they? <laughs> 
uh, along with other people who are writing accounts of what happened. Um, and uh, but in the case of this, this is the guy. Since the question was really about Hollywood, I think in that case, I think the CIA um, cooperated with a with an account that didn't really square with reality. Zero Dark Thirty is a great film, but it's not history. Um, um, as I said, they're really good and diverse questions. Uh, one of our favorite people who's on screen in the museum, Martha Duncan, wants to know your views about Saudi financial support to terrorist organizations, um, those that attack on U.S. soil. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, there's a huge lawsuit that grinds forward on this issue, <clears throat> still unresolved. And the Saudi government has been taken out of the lawsuit under sort of sovereign immunity and other kind of, but so there's some Saudi charities, which are, you know, in Saudi Arabia, the government is sort of in everything. And so the charities, it's not like the Red Cross is completely independent. And, in you know, in, in Saudi Arabia, a lot of these charities are sort of arms of the government in some sense. So this, that, that grinds forward. And I think there's little debate that these charities helped out Al-Qaeda in one way or another, either wittingly or unwittingly. Um, and sort of sorting that all out and what it all means is, you know, something that this lawsuit has taken two decades to try and do. Um, so, and President Biden is under pressure from 1,800 family members of victims of 9-11 to release as much information as possible. My understanding from reporting, just from the reporting that's out there, is CIA, FBI did an investigation. The families want that out. Biden is asking the Justice Department to declassify some of this material. And, I, you know, at the end of the day, I think we'll see that some of these Saudi charities have close links with people in Al-Qaeda. Were they involved directly in 9-11? You know, that is something that remains to be seen. Hopefully, hopefully there will be a trial um, and, and uh, you know, the, all the, the information will become public. But I think as a the Saudi government itself didn't play a role in 9-11. I mean, that... Let's be clear. I mean, Al Qaeda wants to overthrow the Saudi government. It would make no sense that the Saudi government would somehow be, you know, directly involved in 9/11. So, but were Saudi charities sort of associated with Al Qaeda? Yes. What that means, you know, we'll you know, we'll discover over time. One guest wants to know how nervous we should be about not having. Um, an intelligence presence in Pakistan? Well, I think over time, you know, our intelligence collection in Afghanistan will deteriorate. I mean, I mean, you know, yes, President Biden was able to order these attacks on these ISIS-K targets, uh, but the intelligence to do those attacks over time will deteriorate. We can still intercept, uh, National Security Agency can still intercept calls made anywhere in the world, so that will remain an important tool. But in terms of on the ground intelligence, is this person really a member of ISIS? Is this person really a member of Al Qaeda? Some of that's just going to atrophy, um, and you know that's a fact. In fact, Lloyd Austin, you know, the definition of a gaffe in Washington is telling the truth in public, and um, Lloyd Austin uh, spoke in Doha yesterday and said, "Yeah, it's going to be a lot harder to find the terrorists in Afghanistan," which I thought was you know refreshingly candid. Here's the Secretary of Defense uh, saying. You know, it's going to be tough. It's going to be harder. Um, what level of significance um, do you attribute to iconic attacks like the blowing up 
of the Buddhist mountain sculpture, you know, the Twin Towers as a signaling flag to look out for in the future. I, I'm not sure what the question means. I, I don't know either. And I, I was wondering if it would mean something to you. I wish I had asked the asker for a little bit more. Perhaps she will write in and elaborate. Maybe she's wondering if we anticipate, you know, um, we're getting some reassurances supposedly from the Taliban that they will not be destroying more monuments. How do you feel about that? Very interesting to see what their attitude is to, you know, ISIS obviously blew up a lot of antiquities. Um, the Taliban certainly did that when they were in power last time, that would be kind of a leading indicator, um, you know, uh, of where they're at. And they've got plenty of time now to, to impose their will on the population. And so if they start blowing up or attacking other religious minorities as a very small Hindu minority, when they were in power, they forced the Hindu minority to wear distinctive clothing in a sort of not unpleasant echo of the Nuremberg laws. Um, so, you know, we will see. I mean, I think the Taliban cabinet that have just been appointed is not you know, a group of Swedish progressives. And I think that they will impose a pretty draconian rule particularly now the United States is essentially gone. I think we probably got to, to where our guest um, was wondering where we would go. Um, I myself was, was very intrigued by the fact that Osama bin Laden um, recommended that his children not support Al-Qaeda. And I just wanted to know, as more as a parent, I wanted to hear where you thought that was coming from. Well, that was because he nearly, he was nearly killed by the U.S. bombing raids on Tarabara. You know, he barely, the, we, the United States dropped 700,000 pounds of ordnance, including a daisy cutter, which is a 15,000 pound bomb. And I think Bin Laden was injured at the Battle of Tarabara on his left side. So on December 14th, two days after he escaped, he wrote his will. In his will, he said, don't join Al-Qaeda. So I think he was very downcast. He knew that he just narrowly escaped death. Um, and, you know, his organization had basically been, you know, largely, uh, you know, decimated. And so I think that's the context. And, we, and I, he changed his mind because I, other, by the time, you know, he, he, 10 years later, he was encouraging his kids to sort of, not necessarily be involved, but, you know, he was, he, 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 did, he, he changed his mind about not, not being involved in Al-Qaeda at all. He, he still was telling his kids, you know, you should maybe, go and study religion and Doha and he wasn't encouraging them to join on the front line, but he wasn't sort of saying can't do this. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. Andrew, um, do you have any final question before I, I wrap us up? Yeah. One thing just to piggyback on what Peter was saying there uh, in the book, you, you outlined that some of our viewers will be interested in this. You outlined that, uh, bin Laden had a healthy respect for the reach and capabilities of the uh, U.S. intelligence community. Could you just talk a little bit more about that, Peter? Yeah, I mean, he, 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 he understood the CIA drone program was highly successful and he, he had a, you know, he understood that the United States can listen to every phone call and listen, you know, pick, sweep up all the, every email. So he, you know, he avoided all those things and he relied on, you know, he ran Al-Qaeda like he ran, like you were running a business in the 19th century without phone or internet or telegraph. And it was all, you know, by hand. By hand. And uh, 
you know, that, that was pretty, that kept him safe for 10 years, but it didn't, in the end, it also led to his demise. And we have a great exhibit on that very topic. <laughs> if anyone's around Washington and wants to visit. We really, we really do in our analysis area and covert action. So great, great suggestion. Andrew, I want to want to thank you for being a terrific interviewer. And I want to thank Peter, as always, for um, being so knowledgeable and so interesting and, and such a good writer. Um, and leading up to the anniversary of 9-11, it, it was great to have such a thoughtful conversation. And, and we really hope that everyone will be kind to your neighbors as, as we come up on on marking this day on Saturday, um, you never know who's who's hurting um, about this anniversary. Thanks, everyone. Stay well. Be well. Be kind. I think I'm allowed to tell people to be kind. And, uh, thank you, Andrew, and thank you for everybody who listened. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, everyone. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.